Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome again to another edition of the Bible Questions podcast program with Jeff and Brian. Come to you sponsored by the Holly Street Church of Christ in Denver, Colorado. That uh, not only sponsors the podcast, but also sponsors the BibleQuestions.org website that we also like to feature on the program and refer our listeners to from time to time. So, Brian, how are you doing today? Hey, doing well. Looking forward to taking a look at some questions our listeners and others have submitted. Right. So today is going to be focused on questions that people have submitted on the subject of the afterlife. And certainly this is a subject that a lot of people really get interested in from a whole variety of perspectives. I mean, in terms of, you know, are there ghosts? You know, what happens to people after they die? Is there consciousness, you know, after death? Uh, do the saved immediately go to heaven? Can we communicate with the dead? You know, et cetera. Just a lot of different topics that as I said, people really get interested in uh, and that to sort of spark the, not only the, the interest of people, but the curiosity of people. And there's unfortunately a lot of huh, Hollywood-derived beliefs out there or indeed false doctrines uh, that some people may try to derive from the scriptures that we'll try to uh, address as we go through today's program. So for starters, Brian, it looks like our first question comes in from Sam, and he writes, we are told that to die is to be with the Lord, yet it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, that the dead in Christ will rise first. This kind of puzzles him. He asks, wouldn't those dead in Christ already be with him? Why would they need to rise first? Yeah, interesting question, and it's one of these where, as you study this subject, the answer becomes clear, and sometimes it's also an example of how we might take a section of one passage or a you know one passage overall and not necessarily look at the context of that statement that was made, and so it can cause confusion. And so uh, the passage that Sam's referring to can be found over in Romans chapter 14 and verse 8. And as I mentioned, really to get the context, you have to look at the verses around it. In fact, you could look at all of Romans chapter 14 to get the full context, but you know, at least in this case, verses 7 through 9 help. So Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 7, says, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So here we're being told that as human beings, we belong to the Lord. So we know, of course, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, God created man in his image. And so he has created not just Adam and Eve, but all of us. So when we die, one thing that the Bible clearly teaches us is that our spirit will return to God because he created us, but there will also be a judgment that we will all go through as well. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7 tells us that when we die, the dust will return to the earth as it was. 
So once again, you might remember in Genesis, it talks about God formed man from the dust of the earth. So Ecclesiastes here is telling us that when we die, we will return to the dust as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So ultimately, we belong to God. He created us and we'll return to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God not only owns, so to speak, our spirit, but of course our body, and that's why we should glorify him in our body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, which Sam mentioned, tells us that when Christ does return, those who are in the Lord, meaning those who were faithful Christians, will rise first. So they are not with him or with God until they are found to be faithful after the judgment. And you can read about that judgment scene, if you will, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And if you read that section, what you'll notice in verse 32 is that it says, those who are found faithful will be told, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So just to make sure Sam and everyone understands, you know, we are not already with Christ or God. We actually are in Hades, according to Luke chapter 17, which is the realm or the holding place of you, if you will, of our souls until the final judgment, in which case, if we're found faithful, we will join the Lord. So Jeff, a lot, a lot of elements, that's really kind of the basics of uh, what's being talked about there. Right. Uh, as you alluded to, there's the, the passage that you mentioned. There's another one I found, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, where Paul writing says, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, in this present life, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So there is a sense, as you said, when we die, our spirit returns back to God, that in a sense, we're present with the Lord. But as you said, with Luke chapter 16, which we'll get into later on, we are in our, our disembodied soul or, or spirit is in a realm that's called Hades. And that when Christ returns, that spirit or soul will be reunited with a resurrected body raised up and go to you know be with the lord through the judgment day process so hopefully i didn't muddy the water uh, as well but there is a sense in which we are kind of back with god but to be a little bit more precise in hades uh, awaiting the resurrection so hopefully that didn't didn't confuse the issue i know in fact i think it leads really well into the next question which is for you from patrick where he asked, where did the souls of those under the Old Testament go when they died? Then he asked, did the soul remain in the burial tomb at burial? Is Abraham's bosom the same as paradise in the Hadean realm? How did Christ's blood reach back to the Old Testament people to forgive their sins? So kind of a multi-part question. So let's kind of tease it into different uh, aspects. So first of all, you know, where did the souls of those under the Old Testament go when they died? Now, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, there's a lot of different beliefs about what happens to people when they die. First of all, there are some that say, well, they basically cease to exist. I mean, you know, when, when the body dies, their brain likewise dies, and, you know, that's it. They're done. 
Some believe that in a slightly similar way in terms of the soul being unconscious. You may have heard the term soul sleep. Um, I think the, the witnesses most notably, you know, basically believe that, you know, when you die, you're dead. There, there is no ongoing consciousness, you know, after death. As we've already touched on, some people believe that the faithful go straight to heaven, and which we'll see is, is likewise not true. Some people believe there's a place called purgatory where you're given a second chance. Uh, some people say, well, you can come back as a ghost, etc. But uh, as we've briefly mentioned already, which we'll now kind of examine in a little bit more detail, if you go to Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19 through verse 31, we're given honestly a very, very clear, revealing insight into what happens to people when they die. And in this particular case, what an example of people under the law of Moses uh, who died. You know, basically the spirits or souls of the dead go to an unseen realm, which in the Greek is called Hades. And there, depending upon their deeds, there is like some initial judgment that has gone on. And they're either in comfort which is sometimes referred to as being in Abraham's bosom, or they're in some sense of torment, which is what was happening to the rich man, waiting for the resurrection and the final judgment, which we see in Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse 13. And certainly this would apply whether we're talking before the Old Testament was revealed, like prior to the law of Moses, people living under the law of Moses, uh, people you know in Christ's time, uh, Christians afterwards, all people today, basically we all at death go to this place called uh, Hades. Now, uh, what's so independent of, of time period? In fact, what we see in some cases, at least in the Old Testament, with the use of the Hebrew word Sheol, like in Psalms 16 verse 10, in that particular case, Sheol, again, Old Testament Hebrew word, is equated with the New Testament Greek word Hades, Acts one or Acts two verse uh, twenty-seven, which to the you know Greek-speaking audience in the first century, you know they kind of knew that concept already, you know with, with the souls or the spirits or shades they would sometimes be referred to, you know going to this unseen realm of the dead. Now certainly within the Old Testament, there's yeah there's not a lot really revealed. Certainly nothing as clear as uh, Luke chapter sixteen. But there's at least at least one passage that does point to an ongoing existence after death. Exodus chapter three, verse six, where you know God introduces his, so to speak, his name to Moses. You know, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which uh, Jesus picks up in Matthew chapter twenty-two, verses uh, twenty-three through thirty-three, to make the key point that you know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were living even though they were dead. I know that sounds kind of weird, but even after they died physically, they were still in existence, still living in this concept of this, uh, this afterlife or in the Hadean realm. Speaking of which, Patrick asks, is, is Abraham's bosom the same as paradise mentioned in the Hadean room? And the answer is yes. Abraham's bosom mentioned in Luke chapter 16, verse 22. Paradise at least in the sense of after death, yes. In fact, that's where Jesus promised to take the repentant thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, 
which is also equated with Hades in Acts chapter 2, verses 27 and verse 31. Although we have to admit, sometimes paradise is also used to refer to heaven. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, and Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. But in this particular case, Abraham's bosom, paradise, where Jesus and the thief went, yes, those are all equivalent. And I think the last thing he asks is, how did Jesus' blood reach back to the Old Testament people to forgive their sins? Now, does his blood extend back? Yes. Does God consider it sufficient to forgive people under the Old Testament? Yes. And people wonder about that because, you know, they'll often hear today that, you know, to be saved, you must believe in Jesus. Or you have to believe uh, that Jesus died for our sins. Or in some extreme case, salvation is by faith only, which is a false doctrine. But then they turn around and say, yeah, but how were people under the Old Testament saved who didn't have a chance to believe in Jesus? And Brian, actually, when you dig into it, there's a lot of similarities between the faithful who were saved under the law, prior to the law of Moses, like Abel, Noah, Enoch, etc. Those who were saved under the law of Moses and those who are saved today under the law of Christ. Basically, in a, in a, at, a, at a very base level, you know, people prior to the law of Christ were saved by faithful obedience to God's revealed will and his grace. And you kind of read about that in Romans chapter 2, verse 12 through 16, and Hebrews chapter 11. But that part of that salvation and part of God's grace involved eventually the death of Jesus on the cross. In fact, Brian, if you would please, why don't you read for our listeners Hebrews chapter 9, beginning verse 11 through verse 15. Okay, here it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Right. So there's a correlation between Jesus' death on the cross and forgiveness of sin under the old law, under the, uh, the law of Moses. In fact, Hebrews goes on in chapter 10 to continue this thought about the old law versus the new law, the, uh, the fact new law being better, etc. Uh, starting with verse 1, for the law, and again, that's the old law, law of Moses, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, of course, that's the animal sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, of course referring to Jesus, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Of course, that's under the Old Testament law. But I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor have pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. So we see in some ways that Jesus' blood not only travels, if you kind of use the sense, forward in time to forgive us of our sins, but also in some ways kind of traveled backward in time to forgive the sins of the faithful prior to his death. And likewise today, you know, Christians in many ways, same as back then, we are saved by our faithful obedience to God's revealed word, his will, New Testament, law of Christ, and to his grace, which of course involves Jesus' sacrifice. So kind of a, a long-winded answer, Brian, but, but in many ways, it's kind of an intriguing one that people could be righteous, you know, obeying the law of Moses, still sin, offer animal sacrifices, which never could fully forgive sin, and that ultimately it required Christ's sacrifice on the cross to enable God to be righteous and just and forgive the people under the old law. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting question. It is, and it's also one, and I appreciate you taking the time to point out the fact that God didn't leave those faithful under the Old Testament with no promise. And, you know, you read some passages here in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, and you referenced Hebrews 11, and there is one section I really like that kind of further illustrates what you've been talking about in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13, talking about all those in the first 12 verses that it mentions under the old law that were faithful to God. It says, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So, as you mentioned, the blood of Christ forgave all sins, existing forward and even backwards, and has allowed those who are faithful to share in the same promise that all men share in, and that is eternal life in heaven. So such a wonderful promise, and, and once again, appreciate you taking time to explain all that. Okay, on to the next question. So David says, I'm having a discussion with a guy that thinks people are being raised from the dead today. I need help to know this cannot be true. Could you point me in the right direction as to how I need to deal with this? And he says he needs help or he likes Bible answers for things like this. So I guess modern day miracles, you know, raising people from the dead. Yeah, and it's certainly fair for him to say, give me book, chapter, and verse, right? And hopefully for those of you that have been listening to this podcast, that's what's necessary, right? Anytime we want to talk about principles, it has to come from God's Word. And so, yeah, this kind of falls under the umbrella of miracles in general, right? So no doubt there are some that believe people are still risen from the dead today. 
that people can speak in tongues, that there are prophecies and those kinds of things. So, you know, ultimately what David said is correct, that no one is raised from the dead today. And when you look back at what the purpose of miracles was by looking in God's Word, it really was to primarily confirm that the Word of God was being taught, that those who performed the miracles were from God and could be trusted to be conveying the truth. And we look in Mark chapter 16. So Jesus is here speaking to the 11 apostles. And prior to verse 20, we see that he returned to heaven. And then it says that the apostles went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So it makes sense if you think about, you know, being under this old law that we've been talking about. Jesus comes, he fulfills that law, he dies on the cross. Now everybody's being told, starting with the Jews and then everyone else, that now we are no longer under that old covenant. It has been fulfilled. So now we need you to listen to what we're teaching because we are now all bound to the law of Christ, the new covenant which Jesus died for. So by God allowing and working through them, as we saw in Mark 16 here, to be able, through miracles, to help them to confirm the word that they were speaking through these signs, it just makes sense that it gave them credibility in the minds of the listeners to pay attention to what they were saying, because if you weren't from God, you weren't going to be able to perform miracles. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4 says, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So one thing that you'll find when you study God's word is that once we were given the fully revealed word of God, and Jude 3 tells us that it was once delivered, right? So it's been delivered. It's not continuing to be delivered, but it was once delivered. Then miracles ceased. And you can read about that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 10. Why did miracles cease? Because they had served the purpose God intended them to serve. So for instance, speaking in tongues, which meant you were able to speak in a language that you did not natively know, would convince people, well, here's this guy, he only knows this language. All of a sudden, he's able to speak in a tongue or a language that he does not know. Once again, gives him credibility open up, opens up, helps to open up their heart to listen to the truth. So once that was accomplished and God gave us his fully revealed word, which we all have today with our Bibles, then spiritual gifts are no longer necessary. And that's why there are no longer miracles today. So going back to the original question, no one could be raised from the dead today because those miracles have ceased. So anyone who believes or teaches or suggests this is wrong. And they may not necessarily be trying to, you know, spread false rumors or doctrines or whatever, but the truth is they're wrong according to the scriptures. So if you'd like to read a little bit more about this, I'd encourage you to go to our website, BibleQuestions.org. And under the letter M, we have an article entitled, Have Miracles Ceased? And uh, you'll see that in the Miracles section. Really good article that just kind of elaborates more on what I just mentioned. So Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, and one thing I might you know add just a tiny little bit. If it wasn't for First Corinthians thirteen, you know, you might be led to believe that yeah, the you know, miraculous was an ongoing feature that God intended. I mean, obviously God still has the power to grant 
the ability for people to, as you said, speak in tongues, raise the dead, heal the sick, whatever. And yeah, you might have thought that was sort of a permanent feature of the church that it should have had it, you know, throughout the centuries to to modern day. But as you've indicated, First Corinthians chapter thirteen, excellent teaching on why miracles were more of a you know something for the beginning church, more the the child stage, if you will, of the church. That once the revealed will has been you know completed, written down, confirmed with miracles, etc., then you could move on past childhood. When in fact, I think Paul uses some of that terminology become you know more more mature and put the childish things uh, behind us so anyway good thoughts there brian yeah appreciate that okay so the next question comes from jerry for you jeff and he says i understand that we are not to get involved with the occult mediums worship fall worship of false gods but why are we not supposed to try to communicate with the dead like telling my mom and dad I miss them and love them. A fair question, right? We'd, we'd love to be able to say that to our maybe parents that have passed, for instance. Right, well, exactly. And, you know, I can certainly understand that people want to somehow stay connected, you know, to their loved ones after death. You know, converse with them, express their love, express any regrets, whatever that they should have expressed while the, the loved one was still alive. And so, you know, I can kind of understand that from an emotional perspective. But simply speaking, this, you know, desire to, you know, communicate with the dead, you know, God forbids. Technically speaking, we're talking about necromancy, communicating with the dead. At least according to Wikipedia, it's the practice of magic that involves communication with the dead, either by summoning their spirits as apparitions or some kind of vision, or even raising them uh, bodily, you know, sometimes for the purpose of divination, meaning somehow foretelling future events, or discover some kind of hidden knowledge, bringing someone back from the dead, or even you know to use the dead as, as weapons under the canopy of what's technically called necromancy. Now, you know, Brian, if I expand this a little bit, you know, there's a seemingly a lot of renewed interest in not only contacting the dead, you know, specifically through, you know, mediums or Ouija boards or channeling or seances, but also a growing interest in the occult uh, in general. You know, psychics or tarot cards or palm reading or astrology or horoscopes or crystals or witchcraft or crystal balls. I mean, just like all different kinds of stuff. But as students of the Bible, we recognize that, you know, this is nothing new. I mean, you can go back to passages like uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Uh, you know, uh, even though it was under the law of Moses, you can read like beginning with verse 9, where, you know, God through Moses, you know, speaking to the Israelites, when you come into the land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, the pagan ritual, or who practices witchcraft, soothsayer, one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, one who conjures spells, or, now watch it, a medium or a spirit 
spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. Likewise, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. For when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? So we see, you know, for sure under under the law of Moses, again, Deuteronomy 18, uh, Isaiah 8, and even in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20 in the New Testament, this concept of calling up the dead or communicating with the dead, explicitly forbidden. Part of it we can kind of see, you know, so A, forbidden, it's an abomination to God, don't do it. but there's also an underlying reason because some people want to communicate the dead to kind of learn more. However, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5, that in the context of things going on under the sun, Ecclesiastes 9, 5 says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. So don't expect to contact the dead to find out you know, something else that's going on in this world or find out what's going to go on in the future because, you know, the dead don't know those kinds of things. There's another kind of underlying reason in addition to just basically being an abomination to God and the dead don't know the things you might think they know. And that is some scholars will see a connection between contacting the dead what's sometimes referred to as familiar spirits or demons that are mentioned in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27, and in 1 Samuel chapter 28, which in a later question, Brian, we'll we'll talk more about the the incident in 1 Samuel 28 between Saul and the uh, witch of Endor. But the point I want to make at this point is in 1 Samuel 28, verse 8, says, and Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, of course, this is the, the, the witch from Endor, and he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up, whom I shall name to thee. So here we have contacting the dead, divination, and a familiar spirit, or by means of a familiar spirit, which you can read through other other passages and other references, seems to be likely a reference to demons, which is kind of an interesting concept that says, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, people who, you know, claim to speak, you know, being able to bring, bring the dead, into a seance or speak for the dead or channel the dead or whatever. You know, in many ways, they're making it up. You know, they're faking it. But at least in some cases, there may be the uh, involvement of demonic powers. So that, that's another reason to stay away from all this. And, you know, bottom line, like we mentioned in Isaiah chapter 8, it rep- in a lot of cases, it represents a failure to rely on God. You know, we want to contact the dead to get special insight. We want to contact the dead to get special revelation. We want to contact the dead get insight into the future. As we mentioned in Isaiah chapter 8, no, 
we shouldn't be going to the dead, trying to go to the dead to do that. No, we should be relying on God as the source of all things related to a future, afterlife, faithful living, etc. Brian, back to you. Yeah, I really like this question, you know, because Jerry certainly understood that it seems that, you know, we're not to do this. And unfortunately, many people have been duped and a lot of mediums, if you will, have made money by convincing people, like you were talking about seances, you know, to go to a seance, which for those who may not be familiar with is, you know, where you have this person who's a medium, supposedly, that attempts to make contact with the dead through that medium. And people have paid all kinds of money because they have this strong desire to speak with their departed loved ones and those sorts of things. And so uh, I really like this subject. In fact, I'd never heard that term, Jeff, necromancy. <laughs> yeah, ne necromancy. Ne necromancy. Okay, I'd never heard that. Yeah. Very interesting about the practice itself. Uh, so appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, and, you know, nothing new under the sun. You know, been going on for thousands of years. And of course, the scriptures can give us moderns, you know, guidance. That says, you know, this this is not something you need to be dealing with, even though you may have the best of intentions. Just stay away. That's exactly right. All right. So the next question comes from Donna, and she writes, "And oft times we hear at funerals, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord," which she says is a misquote from Second Corinthians chapter five verse eight. But in First Thessalonians four sixteen, the Bible says, "The dead in Christ shall rise." This is seemingly a contradiction which I know does not exist in the word, but I'm having trouble understanding it. Can you help me? And Brian, I'll, I'll just mention real quickly. Yeah, I've been at funerals where people are saying, oh, yes, the dearly departed, they're up in heaven now, looking down on us. They're with God. They're in a better place, etc." So can you clarify that for us? Yeah, you're exactly right. This idea of being present with the Lord is something that I feel like many people must believe. Obviously, they wouldn't say it, but just to assume, hey, when we die, we're present with the Lord. And then to Donna's point, you know, certainly some are referring to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. And so she's right. It doesn't say is present with the Lord. In fact, if you look at what it's talking about, I'll just read here. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, it says, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so it, it doesn't say is present with the Lord, but you know, here, if you really kind of look at the context, Paul is talking about his desire to die and be with the Lord. Now, we know from many other passages that to be with the Lord requires us to be faithful, to be judged as faithful, and then we can be with the Lord. Certainly those that are unfaithful, they won't be with the Lord. You know, Paul also said over in Philippians chapter 1, beginning verse 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So much like Paul said over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he had a desire to be with the Lord in spirit, because we know that once we die, we will shed this body, and we will be in the spirit. But Paul understood, as he says there in verse 24, that at the time, it was more needful. God had work for him to do, so to remain in his body, in his flesh, as he says, was something that God wanted him to do. 
Now, as for 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul is stating that when the Lord comes again, the dead in Christ, those who are faithful Christians, will rise first to meet him. And as for the dead rising first, you know, Paul makes a similar statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52 when he says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So we know from the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jeff, that you mentioned in Luke chapter 16 and verse 31, that the dead will be in Hades, which is the waiting place until judgment. And those who are in paradise, or it's also called Abraham's bosom, those who are the faithful would be the ones who would rise first according to those passages. And so, you know, if we're alive, we'll rise to meet Christ in the air. But if we're dead, we're going to rise first and, and meet him according to the scripture. So, Jeff, I'm not entirely clear why Donna sees a contradiction other than to say, if she says, well, some say we are already with God, right, when we die, versus, no, we won't actually join until we die. That may be, you know, the contradiction that she's referring to. But I will also just point out real quickly, you know, sometimes when you submit a question, if we're not entirely clear what you're asking, we'll just say that when we respond back. We may give an answer and say, well, if this is what you're saying, well, here's what God's Word says. But if you would like to clarify, then, you know, we're more than happy to to readdress the, the part of the question or the question itself that we don't understand. Yeah, and that's a good kind of a side comment, because since I process the questions as they come in, Sometimes I don't really understand the question well enough to, you know, allocate it to one of you guys to answer. And so I'll just go, you know, back to the person and say, hey, before I sign it, you know, could you please clarify what you mean by this term or this passage or, or whatever? Yeah, if, if people submit questions to the website, don't be surprised if this guy by the name of Jeff contacts you for, uh, for further clarification. Next question for you comes from Darlene. She references Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and says, My friend says the messenger talked about here is messages from the dead. Can you explain? Right. So if you want to, Brian, can you go ahead and read uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 for us, please? So here it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So I guess she's kind of focusing Jeff in on that great cloud of witnesses. Yeah, I'm guessing that. And, you know, sometimes, you know, speaking about, you know, processing questions, sometimes we get questions where people will you know, make some kind of obscure reference to the Bible and we really don't know what they're talking about. And sometimes we have to ask them to clarify. Sometimes we can make a reasonable guess. Uh, Sometimes they will submit a verse and on rare occasion, they'll submit a verse to a context that doesn't quite match the question. And honestly, I kind of struggled with this one. She mentioned messenger. So I checked, you know, different translations for Hebrews uh, chapter 12. And not a single one of them uses the word messenger. So to be honest, I don't know what she's asking about. Now, in all fairness, as you pointed out, there is this great cloud of witnesses referenced, which is a reference back to the previous chapter, you know, chapter 11, you know, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, etc. 
but in the context of Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 11, has nothing to do with the dead communicating to us, other than their deeds while they were living, being recorded in the scriptures for examples, you know, good examples for us to emulate and follow, but nothing along the lines of them, you know, quote unquote, directly, literally, you know, talking to us. Brian, I don't know, maybe. And so I went into the Bible and you know, with a keyword of messenger to try to find other passages. Now, I did find a Malachi chapter three, verse one and two, uh, that has messenger. It says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, in this particular case, Malachi 3 is referenced by Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 10 and 11, who says this is a reference to John the Baptist. So, once again, we're not talking about communicating with the dead. And, you know, maybe, Brian, this is a good example that when people make certain claims about what the Bible says, that it is indeed a very good comeback, question them about that, saying, hey, Okay, you think the Bible teaches whatever. Okay, where does it say that? You know, do you have a book, chapter, and verse? First of all. And some cases, they may not. You know, well, I feel X, Y, or Z. Or, you know, I thought I heard it at some point. Or the preacher told me, or the pastor told me, whatever that the Bible says. Well, to be honest, not good enough. You know, we need to know where it says. Because without that, you know, we really can't have a good conversation regarding what God has revealed to us. Now, assuming a book, chapter, and verse is given, well, that's great, because now we can go look at the verse, and we can start employing what I might call uh, proper Bible study techniques. You know, we can look at the context, you know, right around the verses, right around the verse, uh, that are, you know, before it or after it, to kind of get an understanding what's the flow, what's being talked about. We can look at other verses elsewhere that deal with the same top topic what's sometimes called the remote context, and use sound Bible study techniques that's sometimes also referred to as Bible hermeneutics to arrive at the truth of a passage. So, Brian, I think coming back to the original question about uh, messages from the dead, according to Hebrews chapter 12, maybe indirectly in terms of the example of their life, but not certainly in terms of contacting the dead through a spirit or medium or you know, anything like that. Yeah, and as you pointed out, it's so important to understand the proper context. And, you know, I could kind of see, and, and I don't know if this is the case here, but like, you know, Darlene has a friend, and, you know, in Hebrews 12, 1, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and they say, well, see, there's people all around us that we can't see. They're just kind of floating around us, and they're sending us messages, right? So could be something like that where, as you pointed out, regardless of what the belief is, it, we can only go back to the scriptures and say, well, what's really being talked about based on the context? And as you also pointed out, this clearly points back to chapter 11. We have wonderful examples of people who live faithfully before us. And in that sense, they are witnesses, right? Because they basically are examples to us of faithfulness that we should learn from. So anyhow. Right. Yeah, the other thing I just might mention for consideration is, as I said, a lot of people may claim to have certain experiences or may have heard of people who had experiences with ghosts or with communicating with the dead 
or you know you may have heard of people having near death experiences where you know for a certain amount of you know seconds or a few minutes they were clinically dead and they had this experience of traveling through this tunnel of light and etc regardless of their religious background or lack of religious background etc and i think in, in, in many ways that just illustrates again the need to keep coming back to the scriptures coming back to god and what he's revealed about the nature of man and the nature of the spirit and the nature of the afterlife truth about the supernatural otherwise we can easily be led astray by false claims or hollywood or etc that's uh, definitely so true all right, so the next question, which is kind of a lengthy one, comes to us from Derek. Basically, it's an interesting one about Jonah. So he asks, was Jonah alive or dead in the belly of the beast? Uh, referring to the, the great fish. It's a debate among friends of mine and myself. Jonah chapter 2 talks from his point of view about being in the pits of the mountains, which could be hell, almost losing his soul, have been dead, from his point of view within the insides of the beast. For him, it seemed like hell and losing his soul, and he was ready to give up. It doesn't seem to clarify that he was dead. That we know he was bat from the beast onto dry land and went on to do God's work in Nineveh. So he certainly was then alive. Derek goes on to say he can't be dead and come back to life. Nowhere in Old Testament has there been any resurrection Yet, Jesus says something like, as Jonah was cast in the pits for three days, so shall I, but shall return. Was Jesus saying Jonah was dead and the Spirit of God resurrected Jonah? Is it later did Jesus? Or was Jonah cast into what seemed like hell for three days, still alive, and the Spirit brought him back? Kind of an interesting debate, I guess, he's having with his friends about Jonah being in the belly of the fish, whether alive or dead. <laughs> Yeah, and it's an interesting question that also illustrates that it's not uncommon, Jeff, is it for people to not only submit questions, but to make statements throughout, like statements of fact in their mind, um, sort of combined with questions, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like... Right, and in that, in that kind of a complex you know, scenario, as we've often said before, you kind of have to tease the question apart, answer all multiple facets of the question or the statement or false assertions or underlying principles that the person didn't get right, et cetera. So sometimes it makes answering questions kind of an interesting challenge. It definitely does. And, you know, I have to admit, prior to reading this question, I had never heard about this sort of a debate. But regardless, people have lots of thoughts, and certainly friends, as we pointed out in our last question, can make all sorts of assertions, which we can only go back to the Bible to see if it's true. So in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 2, it states that, speaking of Jonah, he prayed to the Lord from the fish's belly. So after he had been swallowed by this big fish, he prayed to the Lord from the fish's belly, which would certainly indicate that he was conscious. And you could say, well, you know, we've been talking about Luke 16, and, you know, after death, you go to Hades, and there is still consciousness. That is true. But he, in that same chapter, and we'll get more into that in a minute, but in the same chapter, he talks about his reference to pits or moorings of the mountains is really symbolic language. And I think we can draw that conclusion, right, just based on how it's worded. And it's not a literal reference to Hades, the realm of the dead that we talked about in Luke 16. So because he uses that language, 
that doesn't necessarily or does not prove at all that he is referencing Hades because he chose to use that particular language. And so really, I don't think it's reasonable for us to think that he died because throughout the entire chapter, there are details of his prayer to God. And it wasn't like one short prayer. He prayed as we could all imagine, right? If you're in the belly of a fish, certainly I could see how he thought he was going to die. How could you expect to live, right? And so he has this fervent prayer to God. And certainly we can reasonably conclude that the Lord heard his prayer as he allowed the fish to vomit him onto dry land. Now, as for connecting it to this statement from Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, and I'll just read here uh, some passages around. This comes from the New King James. It says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There are differing opinions if you study this from scholars as to its meaning. So, for instance, we know that Jesus references the sign of the prophet Jonah in verse 39, where, you know, scholars believe the reference is illustrating how Jonah was preserved for three days, and as a result, it demonstrated he was from God, much like Jesus was preserved, and it was confirmed that he was the Son of God. Other scholars would argue that, you know, they believe he's referencing how Jonah rose in judgment against Nineveh after three days, like Jesus rose in judgment against the Jews after three days. Now, I think the view of preservation makes more sense. And, you know, even though we could debate, well, is it this or is it that? What we do know is that he was alive during that time. And the analogy that's being made here between Jonah and Jesus was not in reference to being dead, it would seem. So one other note here, Jeff, and then I'll turn it over for any comments that you have. You know, Derek made the statement that nowhere in the Old Testament has there been any resurrection. Uh, now, there are actually three accounts of people being brought back from the dead, and to be clear, they did not resurrect, as that will only occur on the Day of Judgment, but they were raised from the dead. And so those three accounts are, first, Elijah resurrected the son of Zarephath's widow. In 1 Kings chapter 17, you can read about that in verses 17 through 24. We also see that Elisha resurrected the son of the great Shumanite woman. And you can read about that over in 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 35. And then there was also an account of a dead man that came back to life when he touched Elisha's bones, and that was uh, or is found over in 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 21. So, Jeff, while this statement that was made might be a little bit tricky to understand, it certainly isn't saying that once again he died and God brought him back to life. We don't really have any indication of that. So, anyhow, that's my thoughts on that question. Uh, and I would tend to agree with that. And in some ways, the end of that situation, here you are, total darkness in some kind of dark, dank, smelly stomach of this beast smells bad, terrible situation, which perhaps has some degree of elements like torment, if you will, whether in Hades temporarily or hell uh, eventually. But just in a, in a very bad, awful, so to speak, uh, situation. Uh, and coming to his senses, like in some ways the prodigal son did in, in Luke chapter uh, 16, repenting, you know, praying to God who graciously uh, heard him and uh, 
allowed him to uh, continue on the mission that God called him to. The other thing I just mentioned, just real briefly, the, the three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, which is an interesting phrase. We understand Hades is a realm of departed spirits. It's, it's not a physical place. It's a spiritual place that, you know, isn't literally at the core of this planet, so to speak, you know, in, in the molten you know, core. But yeah, it's some interesting terminology there as well, which in many ways gets clarified, as we've mentioned before, by uh, Luke chapter 16. Appreciate those thoughts. Let's move on to a question from Patrick. So Patrick asks, or he first says, meaning of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5, but the dead know not anything. Does this simply mean they are not conscious spiritually in any respect after death, or does it simply mean that they don't know anything that's going on on earth under the sun? Reason being, did the rich man in Luke 16 have a memory of his brothers back on earth, even though he was physically dead and in the spirit, asking Abraham to send Lazarus back with water to cool his tongue? Second question, what was the situation with Samuel resorting to asking the fortune teller slash mind reader to contact the dead, even though he knew it was wrong to do? I don't know of the scripture or complete story and can't find it in your topic menu. So really, Jeff, two thought-provoking questions, a little bit different, but certainly related in that it's talking about the afterlife. Indeed. So coming back to the first question, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. You want to go ahead and read that for our audience? Sure. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 4, says, But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Now, some religious groups, most notably the Jehovah's Witnesses, will take this, the dead know nothing, in an absolute sense as a quote-unquote proof text that the dead are basically unconscious or, you know, no longer in existence. You know, their body's in the grave and that's it. And of course, from other verses, we see that can't be the case. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, in parallel with Matthew chapter 22, verse 32, where God reveals to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus uses that to make the point, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So when God was communicating with Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had lived centuries before and had died, were still living, at least in the sense of their spirits, right? And of course, we've already mentioned, you know, Luke chapter 16, where we talked about, you know, consciousness after death. So based on those verses, as Patrick already tumbled to, the know-nothing in the context is indeed what's going on under the sun. So the dead don't have any insight into what's going on you know, in this world. They don't have any insight into what the future is, quote-unquote, under the sun. In fact, Job, uh, over in uh, chapter 14, verse 20 and 21, talking about those who pass on, die. The sons come to honor. They are brought low. He does not perceive it. So those in Hades, no, they, it's not like they're looking down on us. 
and can see what's going on, nor do they have special you know, insight into the future. But as Patrick points out, they, they do still have memories, you know, according to Luke chapter 16. So the rich man remembered he had brothers. And evidently they were still living because they had not come into Hades either. So, yeah, certainly consciousness uh, and memories for sure uh, have to be understood as part of this. The dead know nothing. Brian, any thoughts on that before I go to the second question? Uh, no, let's go ahead and look at that one as well. All right. First Samuel 28. And he said it was Samuel that worked with the witch. No, actually it was King Saul who wanted to communicate with Samuel. So starting off First Samuel 28 verse 3, Saul, King Saul, had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. First of all, of course, that was an anathema, abomination to God. So at least he had done that part, right? Skip down to verse 9, where he has gone now to seek the witch. And she responds back to Saul. Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? which basically is a reference back to Leviticus 20, verse 27, that required the death penalty for those who tried to contact the dead. Now, you might say, well, why did Saul do that? Well, in the same context, verses 5 and 6, he was basically desperate for guidance from God. Uh, Verse 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So he seeks contact from Samuel, who at this point is dead, in clear violation of God's will. And note carefully what happens in verse 12. Note the woman's shock when she, quote-unquote, brings up Samuel. And it actually happens. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. surprise and the woman spoke to Saul saying why have you deceived me for you are Saul so in some ways that's that's kind of some my opinion some insight into the woman who either had been faking it or maybe had been working through demonic familiar spirits but now actually sees the real genuine deal and is basically you know shocked when it does happen And then, of course, Samuel goes on in verse 16 to explain to Saul why God was not communicating with him. Why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing you today so in terms of the situation with resorting to the quote-unquote fortune teller that uh, patrick asked about hopefully that gives our audience some insight as to why he did it even though it was wrong and some (laughs) at least a situation where what the medium or the spiritist was was trying to do actually did work to me indicates that uh, what she had been trying to do previously with some of her clientele was, again, either fakery or through, uh, you know, through demonic uh, familiar spirits. Yeah, an interesting account, Brian. It really is. And, you know, as Samuel told Saul, you should already know this. I mean, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, 
Because he did not utterly destroy the Amalekites as God instructed him to do, Samuel told him God was going to take the kingdom because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. That's in 1 Samuel 15, 23. And then, you know, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice, right? An excuse here. Verse 25, there, now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And then verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So yeah, Samuel made it clear to Saul, and Saul should have known, God's not with you anymore. And that's not changing. So anyhow, uh, the fact that he would even try to continue to communicate with God is a little puzzling. Right. Well, and this kind of you know brings us all the way back around sort of to the beginning of our podcast, where we mentioned that a lot of people make all different kinds of claims about what happens after death and the state of the dead, state of the afterlife, etc., and despite all the claims, you know, people really need to be careful to go to the one true reliable source of the supernatural. And of course, that would be God's word and not be deceived into believing just what people claim or what they might think they experience themselves. Something I'll, I'll throw in there as we begin to wind up today's podcast. Yeah, that's a very important point, because as you said earlier, with the Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, you know, there are religions out there that teach, by taking passages out of context, that once you die, like the old saying is, like, rover, you're dead all over, right? Like an animal. And the Bible clearly teaches that's not true. I mean, first off, what would be the point of a heaven and hell if that were the case? What would be the point of a judgment if that were the case? But yet we see in Luke 16 and other passages, oh, there's consciousness, and there will be a judgment, and that's just the reality of the situation. So yes, go back to the scriptures and test and confirm anything someone might tell you, and make sure you look at the context so they don't try to dupe you by pointing to one verse that supposedly teaches something. So Jeff, I'll turn it back over to you for any final thoughts before I send folks to our website for additional info if they would like. Well, and as I said before, the other thing you know, people need to be you know, very careful of, a couple different things. One is, again, the influence of Hollywood movies. Ghosts are a very popular kind of topic that we need to you know, stay anchored in God's will. The other thing I might mention, and in some ways, Brian, it may be a little bit less in the United States. I mean, you know, we do have psychics and we do have tarot card readings, etc. But, you know, in some parts of the country, the practice of the occult is, is a very real thing that people have to deal with. And some of the, the claims of, you know, what we might call, quote unquote, witch doctors, etc., you know, again, we need to stay anchored in the scriptures, regardless of what the claims might be, or regardless of what, you know, circumstance or coincidence that we might uh, see or encounter, you know, happening in some of these situations. Yeah, very good points. Appreciate that. So appreciate all of you joining who are listening and considering these questions that have been submitted on the afterlife. If you'd like some additional information, please go to our website at biblequestions.org. And under the topics menu, we have uh, several different items that you can take a look at to continue your study, starting with choosing the letter A for information on the afterlife, B for Bible study, which we just emphasized, right, the need to really kind of look closely at what God's Word teaches, uh, H for Hades, 
O for the Occult, which is an interesting section that covers some of the things Jeff just mentioned. J for Judgment, M for Miracles, like we referenced in 1 Corinthians, and then R for Resurrection. So I encourage you to take a look at those topics to consider the principles from God's Word that we discussed and do everything you can to faithfully follow what God's asked us to do. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.